back to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. My name is Stefano Bini, and I am your host for this new season, bringing you the best talks from the DocSF Experience 21. DocSF, if you've been following us at all, you know that we believe strongly that change does not happen in a vacuum, and that understanding the major policy trends inside the Beltway in Washington, D.C. is important particularly a time of change with an incoming administration. To help us better understand all this, we asked Dr. Tom Barber, who has led the DocSF politics desk for the past several years, to speak with Dr. Doug Lundy, Advocacy Council Chair from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery, and Jordan Vivian from the AAOS's Office of Government Affairs, to join him on the DocSF virtual stage. Hey, I'm Dr. Doug Lundy. I'm the Advocacy Council Chair for the American Association of Orthopedic Surgery. I'd like to welcome you to this webinar. Um, when many people think about the AAOS, they think about our office in Rosemont and all of the educational activities that occur out of there. A lot of people don't know about the tremendous resource and the activities that we do out of our Washington, D.C. office, which is known as the Office of Government Relations. As I've become more familiar with the functions of the Academy and the Association, I've developed a much deeper appreciation for the tremendous work that's done out of that office for the benefit of our profession and for our ability to take care of patients. So with us today, we have Jordan Vivian, who is one of our uh, staff members at the Office of Government Relations, and we're going to discuss a lot of the things that's going on currently in Washington, D.C. Jordan? Thanks so much, Dr. Lundy, for the intro. I appreciate it. Um, I, I, like Dr. Lundy said, am one of your four federal lobbyists in D.C. Thrilled to be here with DocSF again. Um, it, you know, we're excited to talk about what's going on with health policy, why it matters. We thought the best way to present that to you all today was to talk about the sometimes kind of wonky world of health policy through three basic concepts. The first is we're going to talk about what's here to stay, and then we're going to talk about what we think is coming next. And then we're going to talk about what's not happening. And because I'm in politics, I always hedge probably, probably not happening as a way to kind of go through what we're looking at in terms of health policy. And before we do, I want to quickly frame the issue to talk about what the state of play is in, in D.C. and policymaking in general. And the easiest way to say that is we've got unified Democratic control of Washington for the first time in 10 years. But it's just barely by the thinnest of margins in the House, and it's dead even 50-50 in the Senate. And you obviously have a, a new president in, in President Biden who is doesn't represent the most progressive wing of his party, um, has sought to be more of a centrist. We'll see if that continues in his governance style as it did in his running for office. And what's important to understand before we launch into the specifics is the strategy so far seems to be to pass very popular bills without any Republicans and then to smack them with it at midterms. I mean, that, that's that's literally, if you were to distill what they're working on, that is what they're working on. Um, historically, what Democrats are looking at is a pretty rough year in the midterms in, in 2022. Uh, when you look at the president's party, when they have a, a situation like this going into the midterms, they lose seats and they most likely lose the majority in the House. So they're facing really difficult historical headwinds. So that's just an important framing device to talk about as we as we look into the specific policies. 
So the first thing, and I'll I'll go ahead and kind of introduce the the subject, then I'll I'll ask Dr. Lundy to weigh in too, and we can talk about it back and forth. But for here to stay, this shouldn't be a huge surprise. We have telehealth. I mean, there were massive policy changes during the COVID-19 public health emergency, including waivers for Medicare requirements, the like such as them being located in rural areas, being an eligible origination site. Everybody knows that where it's in the wild, wild west of telehealth right now. And as you can see, patients are responding to that. We're seeing uh, incredible projected growth right now, just incredible increases in terms of how much telehealth is being used. And obviously that statistic down at the bottom is all is all care, not just uh, not just surgical care or primary care. And obviously primary care is a big part of that, but we were seeing that in surgical care too. And I think what's important to understand in terms of policymaking is this is the bipartisan health policy item that is moving right now. I, there was just a real bipartisan love fest hearing in the House Energy and Commerce Committee not that long ago. They want to extend these waivers. They don't. There's going to be arguments about which specific waivers to extend. You know, I don't think that they're going to suspend enforcement of HIPAA forever. Obviously, there are things like that that are going to end. It won't be the wild, wild west forever, but a lot of these waivers will continue. And there's an awful lot of bipartisan push to get that done for their constituents who are clamoring for it. So I'd love to ask Dr. Lundy as we open up the conversation about this, since we believe that telehealth is here to stay, in your opinion, do you think orthopedic surgeons have taken full advantage of the opportunities in telehealth? And what specific policy changes do you think we need to make that happen? You know, Jordan, that's a fantastic area to discuss. I think prior to COVID, if we had gone to the academy meeting and said, who's doing telehealth and what do you think the potentials are within that, there would have been a lot of us who would have brought up the issues associated with telehealth and all the reasons why it probably doesn't respond as well to orthopedic surgery as it would to perhaps other uh, specialties. Interestingly, there was a study in the Journal of the American Medical Association that looked at surgical specialties and the percentages of new office visits pre-COVID and post-COVID in terms of use of telehealth. And orthopedic surgery tended to be on the lower end of the surgical adopters of this. I don't, I don't think we should read too much into that study, but clearly there are issues in orthopedic surgery that make telehealth more difficult, if uh, nothing else, and how we're going to use it in the future. Clearly some of our fellows found it to be extremely helpful during the heights of the pandemic, when we were not able to see our patients and we had to do that. Uh, my specialty is trauma surgery, so I all I do is is uh, complex fracture surgery. So my patients tend to be pretty beat up with a lot of different injuries, and so trying to interface with them across the web had its challenges. But in some ways, it was really cool. So first off, we know that the patients really like it, right? I mean, they would much rather just log in in the comfort of their living room than they would be to to get in the car and come all the way over to our office. And so I think that that's a a headwind that we're going to have to address. One of the big concerns I think that is present with telehealth in terms of of our specialty is the exposure to medical liability that we may uh, certainly incur doing this. So what's the chance of of Mrs. Jones showing us her incision on the camera and we can't really get a feel? I I think it's okay. Is it infected? I don't know exactly. And then, you know, as we know, many of our patients will take pictures of these wounds. And then, God forbid, she does have an infection. We may have been able to pick it up in live time, but over telehealth, we were not able to. And I'm, I'm just grabbing this as an example, but there are many others. 
certainly certain parts of the physical examination, especially with shoulder surgery and with knee surgery in terms of stability exams can be challenging to do that way. And so there is this medical liability issue associated with this as well. Clearly though, it's here to stay. It's gonna be continued to be developed. There's a lot that we need to work on with it. And then also when we're working on these things and we're doing telehealth visits, there has to be some degree of parity of payment for the office visits that we're, that we're performing here. Many times, and the studies have shown that the visits may be more quick than the live visits. But of course, when you're in my office and we get extensive x-rays, we can't get x-rays, right? So you're on telehealth. And then secondly, it doesn't really go as smooth as I think many people might think it does. There's a lot of times uh, as the physician, you're waiting for somebody else to come on or you're just working through the mechanics of the program to make it work. So there's a lot to this telehealth. I think that there's a tremendous opportunity in orthopedic surgery that we can take advantage of and make better, but there are absolutely issues that we have to address. It's a really good point about liability. And just quickly before we move on to our next um, topic, I think, you know, you and I have talked about this before. Where does the liability lie on the physician to decide, you know, you need to come into the office, the physician, obviously at AOS, we're all about empowering the physician-patient relationship. So we don't want any government bureaucrat or, or state regulation stepping in and saying, no, you know, these are the specific times where you need to be in the office. And this visit, we want the physician and the patient to have as much control over that process as possible. So where do we think the lines will be drawn in terms of when it's the physician's responsibility to know and when it's the technology just didn't work the way it was supposed to, the way it was advertised as, and then that shouldn't be something the physician's liable for. You know, and that's a very good point. Another interesting point came up in my family. So I live in Atlanta. My oldest son goes to Auburn University and my youngest son goes to aircraft mechanic school in Florida. And during the height of the pandemic, I didn't want my family anywhere near me because I actually came down with COVID. Everybody's school shut down. So my wife and my two sons went to Auburn and they were in Alabama during this time. And my youngest son needed to see his physician who was here in Atlanta. So he logged on to the telehealth visit. And the first question the physician asked is, where are you? He said, well, sir, I'm in Auburn, Alabama. And he said, I'm sorry, I can't see you because you're not in the state of Georgia. And so those state line issues that seem a little, yeah, what's the big deal with it? It does come into play because my son's physician would have been practicing Alabama, uh, practicing medicine across state lines in Alabama rather than here in Georgia. So there's a lot that needs to be settled in this. As with many things, once we start getting down into the details, it's a whole lot more complicated than we might have initially thought, right? Right. That's a really good point. And I want to move us on to the next thing, but I think what you're talking about in terms of the state lines and uh, you know having licensure across state lines is something we've dealt with in other issues with team physicians and other things. And that will certainly be an important point where there may not be quite as much bipartisan um, bipartisan agreement when we start to get down to the nitty gritty like that. So that's a really good point. Um, moving on to the next subject that we want to talk about, what's coming next? It's something that you may have seen quite a bit, getting an awful lot of media coverage, obviously an awful lot of study, which is health equity. Um, we know that uh, the Biden administration has made this a key priority for them. There's several executive orders already. They established the COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force. They're actually directing all federal agencies to look at all existing federal programs to assess any systemic barriers to access care benefits that they may be propagating or contributing to unintentionally. 
And they're also proactively looking at the ways the budget can be used to proactively enhance equity. Also on the congressional side, this is the talk of Democratic health policy staff. Anytime you talk to somebody and, hey, we, you know, we're doing all these check-ins in the new Congress and asking folks, what are you working on? You know, how can we be helpful? And every single one of them says health equity. And I think what's interesting is it's so early on in this that it's not very well defined. And so folks are actually um, there's a mad dash among Hill staff to try to find old priorities that have never really gotten through and find a way to put them under the label of health equity so that they can be a part of this and help move forward and more likely to get leadership's attention that way. So I think that's something really interesting to watch as we look forward. But Dr. Lundy, my question for you is, how do you see health equity concerns um, in your practice? How do you see orthopedics contributing to real solutions here? So I, until recently, I was president of Resurgence Orthopedics, which is a very large group here in Metro Atlanta. And my specialty, as I said, was trauma surgery. I've always got pushback from a lot of our fellows and other, other places where we hear of tremendous healthcare inequities. And we as orthopedic surgeons our hands up saying that when somebody comes into the emergency room, it doesn't matter about any underrepresented group that they may be in, we're going to take care of everybody equally. And that's a very true statement. We do a very good job of that. However, if we're going to be honest, there are significant health care inequities on non-urgent problems, and then also on the urgent emergent patients that we treat in terms of follow-up uh, second, third uh, surgeries that may need to occur, additional imaging, rehabilitation, prosthetics, and things like that. There are clearly healthcare inequities that we have to address. So even though many times in our practices, these are, are not issues, overall, that's clearly an issue in the country that needs to be addressed and has we as we progress from here on that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as we talk about suggested steps, I think it's, you know, the first step is important to acknowledge the issue. You know, these the health equity impacts outcomes, the social determinants of health um, are having an impact on outcomes. And tying it back to what we were just talking about with telehealth, I think that's one of the possible benefits is better views into social determinants of health. There's been some really cool stories about being able to see, you know, somebody's living conditions and how that impacts their recovery from surgery and being able to provide better outcomes that way. So I think that's really interesting. But in, in terms of proactive solutions, I know AOS is looking to contribute to this conversation. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you think AOS is driving towards in terms of solutions? I think the first thing that the association and our fellows need to do is at least acknowledge the issue. Once again, we all have experiences where we take care of everybody who comes in right away. However, it's very important for us to acknowledge that healthcare inequities do exist, especially not just in terms of the care that we deliver, but all the things around it. So for instance, in my patients, if you sustain a fracture and you're unable to work, yet you're the breadwinner for the home, Who's paying the rent? Who's putting food on the table? And who's making the car payments and the insurance payments and all the other things that need to happen? So these healthcare inequities do exist across the matrix and cause a lot of problems. I think that's a really important point. And then the proactive solutions that kind of AOS is looking at in this area to contribute to this conversation are focusing on building a more diverse orthopedic workforce. I know that's a big um, focus all the way up to our board and our presidential line working with organizations like Movement is Life to get out into the communities and try to you know, work on non-governmental solutions uh, to try to build these relationships that will really help to address some of these inequities. And those things are extremely important, but no matter what Congress comes up with and how HHS decides to write the rules to integrate these pro uh, solutions to these problems, 
we have to make sure that we do not increase physician burden with this. We all know that a tremendous amount of our time and a huge amount of the overhead expense that our practices endure have a lot to do with paying for the burden of administering healthcare and all the, the hurdles that have to be overcome to make this occur. So we have to really make sure that any solutions that come out, although it's extremely important to, to develop these solutions, they cannot just be another add-on to the physician's workload. And so when we look at the whole spectrum of the political leanings of our fellows, we feel that this really is a centric matter that really kind of hits right in the middle that the vast majority of our fellows will understand and be able to get behind. Before I turn us to our last issue, I do want to quickly put in a plug for the um, AOS Advocacy Bone Beat podcast. Um, if you haven't checked it out yet, I do highly recommend it. That there is a, It's right up at the top of the list. There's a um, great podcast episode that they did at the end of last year uh, about reducing disparities in the orthopedic context. So if you'd like more information on this topic, highly recommend that you uh, check out the Bone Beat podcast. And, you know, you talked we talked about telehealth a second ago. That also can help in, in a lot of times with the, the issues of healthcare inequities. But once again, people have to have access to the Internet, access to a computer to, in order to do this. But there may be innovative ways that we as a profession can help use telehealth and use technology to decrease uh, healthcare inequities and make a more a better standard for us taking care of people across the entire matrix. So moving on then to our last uh, topic of what's not happening, probably, again, I'm going to hedge. We're just talking this Congress, so it's this two-year cycle ending at the end of uh, 22. I'm not comfortable making predictions beyond that. I feel like the entire town got out of the prediction business after 2016 with due reason. So just talking this two-year cycle, I do feel pretty comfortable predicting that we're not going to see any major changes in who's paying for healthcare in terms of adding more government payers or adding you know massive new people to Medicare this cycle. And we'll talk about why. But first, I want to talk about the political reality. There's obviously lots of talk about the filibuster. I don't think the filibuster is going anywhere, but we'll see. The pressure is obviously continuing to increase. And we know you're not going to get 10 Republican votes uh, for anything in the realm of, of Medicare for all or public or public option. But I think what's more interesting to think about is that we're not even talking about 60 votes. We're talking about 50 votes on a lot of this stuff. You do not have the Democrats united. There's a, a pretty significant number of Democrats that are very uneasy about Medicare for all. They may not be saying so publicly, but when it comes time to vote, that's a very difficult vote for them. So there's just an awful lot that has to happen before we get into a space where this is even realistic. And one thing, the slide that we have up there that I want to mention is what we found in polling is that as people that Medicare for all or expanding a public option polls very well. But as you start to talk about the specific impacts, as you can see in that chart, people start to oppose it pretty heavily. And the issue hasn't been defined yet. It hasn't been defined by the opponents, in fact. And so as that continues to happen, those you know very popular polls will continue to go down. And then the last thing I'll just say in terms of the new president's perspective, obviously we know he ran on a public option, but it really doesn't appear to be at the top of the priority list. The first thing was COVID stimulus. We know that that's done. And the next thing is going to be infrastructure. Uh, and we know that that is coming with the next big you know, 50 vote reconciliation package. So, and the closer we get to 2022, the less likely it becomes. Time is incredibly valuable and they're using their time on other things. And that'll, that tells you what their priorities are. So Dr. Lundy, turning to you, do, do you buy my argument that Medicare for all isn't feasible in terms of a policy option right now, even setting aside the ideology concerns there? And second, do you think the public in general understands that? 
I think your points on that are extremely well taken. If you carefully watch how the Biden administration working with the Senate and the House is rolling out their policies and their legislation on how they want things to impact the country, I feel like this is something that that Joe Biden would look at and say, there's a lot of political cost to this right now. To your point, there's, there's a great question is, does he even have enough votes in his own party to make this pass either chamber? An important part of this as well, though, is to look at our own fellowship, that in my experience and talking to many, many academy fellows, we don't necessarily all fall on the right side of the spectrum like many people assume that we do. There's a lot of very strong AOS fellows who are very involved in the, the process, who have very liberal leanings, some that have very conservative leanings, and many all in between. So it's important for us to all get together and decide what our positions are in these matters as they come up and as we move forward. Because a lot of this is, is unplowed ground in terms of a lot of these policies that we're now being faced with. And so it's important for us to realize that there's a lot of diversity in our fellowship, just like there is in the country. Let's treat each other with a significant amount of respect and work through a lot of these things as we can as we proceed forward in this administration. Absolutely. And I will just say another historical note, not to be too much of a, a, a nerd on this, but three of the last four presidents have tried divisive health care proposals in their first year in power and have led directly, some would, some would argue, I would argue, to electoral defeat in their second. Biden's a student of this stuff. He's been in the Senate forever. He understands how this works. And I think that's paying, that's part of his calculus as well. And when I talk to my patients, to your point, I think Medicare for all sounds good to a lot of people until they start peeling it back and realizing what that exactly means. First of all, Medicare is is intended. Now, there's more than just over 65 year olds on Medicare, but the vast majority of the Medicare population is the older population in our country. And the needs of those folks do not necessarily always translate down to the 20 year olds or to anybody else in the country on that. So as attractive as it may seem to some people, as you pointed out earlier, as you start to unravel the onion and we start to look deeper and deeper into it, it may not be the best option that many people think. And, and uh, the Biden administration may lose uh, support in doing that. Now, to your point, the progressives are pushing him into doing many of these things. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how this all rolls out. And what we've seen with Senator Sanders, obviously Bernie Sanders is a, a lead proponent for Medicare for All. It's got his name all over it. What he's turning to right now, which is also indicative of the attitude, is smaller bore solutions, he would say, to try to get closer to what he wants, lowering the eligibility age for Medicare. He obviously now has, uh, he's now chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, which does give him some influence um, in this, so we'll see. But I think it's interesting even that the primary proponent of Medicare for All is now aiming a little bit lower. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. And then why don't we head uh, directly into the wrap up and uh, Dr. Lundy, I'll let you go ahead with the takeaways and we can talk about those before we go to questions. Thank you, Jordan. Um, as we can see, this will be a very interesting time in our country's history for multiple things, especially for healthcare. The COVID crisis certainly derailed a lot of the efforts that was coming prior to this. Yet, as with everything else, we're going to be able to get some good out of this and hopefully improved delivery of, of healthcare and different things that we do. The three big things that we talked about that are going to be on our radar for the next two years that we'll keep a close eye on. Number one is telehealth. What's that going to look like? 
what is Congress going to do with it? And then how will the regulatory agencies actually write the rules of how that actually impacts and affects us? Next year, next is healthcare inequities. There are significant inequities across the entire country. How can we decrease these inequities so that we can take care of our patients in a much more better fashion with higher quality and lower cost as we continue along? And then lastly, what is the ongoing nature of Medicare for all and what is the attempts of actually getting coverage for the rest of the country? How is that going to happen? And what is this going to look like as we move forward uh, into the next two years and then beyond? Absolutely. And on behalf of myself and Dr. Lundy, I'll just say thank you so much to Doc SF. We really appreciate the opportunity to be here and we're happy to take any questions. Okay. Doug and Jordan, thank you so much for your talk. I really appreciate the insights. For those of you who don't know, I'm Tom Barber, an orthopedic surgeon, and I'm an ex-chair of the Council on Advocacy that uh, Doug Lundy now holds that position. And I've been helping out with the politics desk for quite some time in, in Doc SF. And so I appreciate being back again this year. Doug and Jordan, just a couple of questions. I'm going to start off by asking you, you mentioned during your talk two key areas of government focus, virtual care and disparities in care. From my perspective, or from our perspective, virtual care can sometimes lead to disparities because of the lack of computers, the lack of access to computers at work, and differences in reimbursement and co-pays for visits that are not in person. How are the regulations and legislation going to evolve to help reduce disparities for care that's not in person? You know, Tom, thank you. That's a, a really good question because the association, the American Association of Orthopedic Surgery, strives to reduce disparity in care everywhere that we can. And we recognize that it's a significant issue. And to your point, you know, we thought when the pandemic came up that the telemedicine this was going to be a, a great thing because we don't have to interact closely so we can still take care of people without increasing the rate of COVID. But to your point, that's a very good thing that was not perhaps as anticipated as much as it should have been, that it does lead to disparities in care from people that don't have access. Now, one of the things in the Biden $2 trillion plan, the infrastructure plan, was $100 billion uh, devoted to, to broadband access, which will help. Certainly not the answer for everything, but it will certainly help in how that goes. Another important point on this is what is the future of telemedicine after the pandemic? Uh, I think, as, as we said earlier, it was very clear that if you had asked, if you and I had been talking about this a few years ago, we would have said, you know, telemedicine can't happen in orthopedics. I mean, we have to check, we have to examine, we have to touch people, we have to do that. We, no way we could do that electronically, but guess what, you know? We certainly learned we can. It may not always be ideal, but it certainly has a strong place in that. So one of the other big issues that the association is trying to work through is to make sure there's equitable and equivalent reimbursement for our physicians doing this, which would, of course, increase its value in the marketplace. Jordan, do you have any other thoughts? I think payment parity is a, um, a key policy goal for us for exactly that reason, that we feel like it will help address disparities. I think ensuring that the value of care, whether it's delivered in person or over telehealth, is really a priority for Congress, is making sure that that value is the same. So, you know, AOS and other specialties are going to have to be ready with data and quality, and that's going to really help us press the case for, uh, for payment parity, but it's all really tied in together. Thank you. Um, I would encourage the audience to go ahead and ask any questions that you have in the chat uh, room. 
And the, I've got another question for you while we're waiting for questions from the audience. There's lots of talk right now, and you even referred to it, Doug, just a couple of minutes ago, about, the, about Biden's infrastructure plan. My question is really, are there going to be uh, healthcare proposals within that infrastructure plan? Do you see anything in regard to telehealth, health equity, or Medicare expansion making it into that package? That's a good thing you bring up. And recently on the Council on Advocacy call, we discussed this uh, with the, the Association uh, Office of Government Relations personnel that do so much good work for the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons and our fellows across the country in terms of in Biden's infrastructure, what is, you know, if you think about it, healthcare, as we have certainly seen during the pandemic, should be part of this. So Really, at this point, it seems to be uh, the things that we're hearing off of the floor of Congress is that infrastructure may be whatever we can get into the bill. One issue, though, of course, is the very thin majority that the Democrats have in both houses and what they're able to get through outside of reconciliation. So that's a very good question. I think that for my answer would be we're going to doggedly pursue as many appropriate things that we can to include in that. But I think the, the devil's in the details on how that's going to go out. Uh, Jordan, you got any more insight on that? You're absolutely right. It, it's, a, it's a political process. And I think anything that has a majority of support will be um, what ends up being in this the 2.0 infrastructure bill, which we expect to hear more details about next week in advance of uh, Biden's joint um, address to uh, joint Congress address that will come on Wednesday. So there, you know, we're going to hear more details. We know that um, $100 billion for broadband is already in there. So that goes to telehealth. They're really selling it as broadband for everybody. Um, so that'll help address the, the equity um, you know, concerns that Dr. Barber just raised. But one thing that I think is really going to play a role that we'll have to watch for is how the bill's paid for. Uh, that's something that um, they didn't really have to deal with in the COVID stimulus bill, the you know the first um, big package that made it through Congress, a big priority of the Biden administration. It's much easier to keep unity, but you know when you uh, don't have to deal with sticky things like that. So I think this is going to be a, a longer and more difficult process, and there'll be a lot of opportunity for putting things in the infrastructure bill. But I wouldn't expect it to be quick. Let me put it like that. All right, thank you. Just to go back a little bit on what you said about the stimulus. One question I have is in the Obama era stimulus plans that came through, there was a big focus on the electronic medical record. Do you see any of that focus in these bills at all? Hmm. So I, I can take that. We haven't seen, like I said, we haven't seen the details of this infrastructure 2.0 yet. And there's an awful, I, I honestly don't think the details are even settled because I know a lot of folks behind the scenes are, are still really angling to get their key provisions into just the, into the proposal. Um, so I, I don't have the information on that yet, but I hope that we'll know in the next few days. Okay. Tom, Tom, I'm sure you've seen in your practice, as we have, the tremendous lack of internet connectivity. I mean, you know, back during the Obama administration, EMRs were nowhere near as prolific as they are now. I mean, everybody's like on EMR. But the thing that we continue to significantly lack is the interconnectivity that if you see a patient and they end up in my office, I can't really access your chart near as easily or as well as we should, even if we're still on the same platform. So there is significantly a, I'm sorry, there's a tremendous amount of work that can still be done in this area. I agree with you 100%. Being at a cancer center, I see that firsthand, you know, where we're trying to get records from other healthcare systems from all around the country, and it's very difficult. So yeah, I agree with you. That's an area of attention that, that could be there. Um, I mean, it's better. I mean, I, I, I've been treated for cancer outside of my network and my doctor was able to access 
those records, but she had to jump through a bunch of hoops to get there. So I think that there's still a lot of work that could be done. Absolutely. One other thing, in my past world in, within Kaiser Permanente, I did a lot of work in secure messaging. And we looked at secure messaging between patients and physicians. And one major difference we found in the socioeconomic groups, as we talk about these disparities of care, were in the lower socioeconomic groups, people tended to access secure messaging almost uniformly through their cell phones, whereas uh, people in the higher socioeconomic classes tended to use computers more often. Um, And I know there was some suggestion in the Cures Bill to help move plans towards more cell phone-based access, if you will. But do you see anything further happening in, in that realm? I think that that is a very good point. It gets back to earlier what you were saying on the disparities issues. I think that's a very wise way to look at it. The platform really shouldn't be that relevant. Unfortunately, as we know, there's a lot of cheating on cell phones where we go into non-secure methods that really are not as prolific as they are on hardwired computers or on real on, on laptops. Association has been looking at this closely, trying to make sure that this is manifested across the platform and that everybody has good access on that. It's hard to say what the final details are going to be there, but uh, I think that has a lot of promise. Yeah, absolutely. And if I can just add, Dr. Lundy, I think you're you're right. Uh, this is a major concern. What we've seen already is that um, certain payers may be requiring certain platforms in order to access telehealth. And I think what that does is it may limit the innovation that may lead to, like you're talking about, Dr. Barber, more more platforms that are device agnostic and that uh, provide better value. And it also may hamper access to care. You know, if the physician that you're seeing isn't on that specific platform, whatever it be, and the payer requires you in order, you know, in order to access it, you have to just use this platform. That's preventing you from accessing care to the the provider that knows you the best and that um, has been taking care of you and maybe actively interfering in your continuity of care. So that that's something that's really important for us is, is making sure that that evolution continues to happen. And the other thing I'll say quickly is that the non-enforcement of HIPAA has uh, one of the waivers that will probably not continue. I, I feel very comfortable saying that Congress is looking, like we were talking about earlier, Congress is looking at an awful lot of solutions to continue allowing telehealth, but they're not looking at forever allowing you know HIPAA to not be enforced. So that's something that once that goes away again, we'll have to see you know whether or not there are platforms that that you know grow up out of that that are you know HIPAA compliant. Uh, you know because we haven't had to deal with that during the pandemic. And in the last minute, we don't have a lot of time left. But where are our health plan and governmental payment um, structures going with regard to virtual care or video care or telephones? Where do you see that evolving? That will be a big issue. And the association is actively, aggressively advocating for that in the administration and, and through CMS and DHHS. The healthcare system, specifically the specialists, uh, were under significant risk this year of payment cuts across the platform in terms of Medicare from four different entities. Uh, as you know, the total joint surgeons did take a 5.7% cut of total hip and total knee payments. And the rest of the house of specialty medicine is also under significant risk to offset the increases to the ENM codes. And so this is a little bit of a tricky time for us to be advocating for that. However, with the recognition that these are important ways to go with this. We're trying to really advocate for the 
parity in this payment to make sure that we can continue to provide good quality care through these virtual options. Yes. Really quickly, the only thing I'll add is a key to everything we do is ensuring the value of surgical and orthopedic care. Thank you guys very much. This has been a very instructive session, and I really uh, appreciate your help. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Tom. It's great to see you again. On behalf of all of us at DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference in San Francisco, thanks for listening and for joining our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and tell your friends. If you're interested in joining our team, participating, or being interviewed on DocSF, please let us know. If not, please join the revolution and listen up for our next podcast.